Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Establishing the Role of Immunotherapy in Microsatellite Instability High or Mismatch Repair Deficient Endometrial Cancer, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Microsatellite instability and mismatch repair deficiency are important biomarkers for predicting responses to immunotherapy and guiding treatment selection for endometrial cancer. Are you testing for this biomarker in your patients with endometrial cancer? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Robert Coleman. Here with me today are Dr. Susanna Campos and Dr. Anna Wachman. Hi, good morning, and thank you for having me today. Hello, this is Anna Wagner. I'm very happy to join Rob and Dr. Campos to discuss this interesting topic that is endometrial cancer and MSI DMMR status. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Wagner, to set the stage for this chapterized course, can you outline the molecular genomic classification of endometrial cancer for our listeners? Uh, for sure, this is a very important topic. I would say that the main progress in endometrial cancer has been driven by the TCGA project. Indeed, TCGA provided a comprehensive molecular classification with segregate endometrial cancer in four subtypes based on genomic anormality. The poly or ultramutated, MSI high or hypermutated, copy number low and copy number high or serous light. While TCGA is a milestone in endometrial cancer classification, as you know, it requires complex methodology. Therefore, we have developed a simplified molecular classification to have the potential for implementation in our daily practice. And this classification identifies four molecular subtypes that are analogous but not identical to the TCGA subtype. That is to say, polymutant, mismatch repair deficient, P53 not normal, and SMP. And I would like to add that each of these molecular subgroups has a different prognosis. And in addition, this knowledge really provides us with an opportunity to tailor treatment for our patient with endometrial cancer. Yeah, that's so important. Um, thank you for that description. Uh, Dr. Campos, what impact does endometrial subtype have on prognosis and therapy selection? No, it's a very good question. Um, you know, historically, we would think of endometrial cancer as a type 1 and a type 2 uh, disease state. And type 1 was the um, endometroid uh, histologies, and the type 2 were the more clear cell carcinosarcoma um, and the uterine pap serous. But in 2013, and through the work of many investigators, the TCGA data really identified four molecular subtypes of endometrial cancer, and these had distinct prognostic outcomes. One of them was a pole mutation, which was this ultra-mutated uterine cancer, uh, which actually tended to have a favorable prognosis. Second was an MSI high cohort, um, which are responsive to immunotherapy. The third cohort is the P53 abnormality group, which were the, um, the ones that actually had more of a uh, poor prognostic element. These are like the uterine pap serous. And then there was the not otherwise specified, which were more like the microsatellite stable. So this new classification, the TCGA data, um, and then there's been a, um, a another more pragmatic classification called the PROMIS data. This actually helped us 
reorganize our thoughts on endometrial cancer so we're no longer thinking about it in terms of a type 1 or a type 2. We're really thinking about it as a pull mutation, MSI high, MSS, or P53 aberrations. Yes, thank you. So, yeah, I think if you look at this, you know, we have this new kind of classification scheme uh, that is aligning tumor biology with potential therapies. And of course, we've already seen this uh, with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, which is so exciting. But, uh, you know, as we continue to develop, even out that uh, cohort of patients that have no specific molecular abnormality, we're starting to find some nuances, even in that group of patients, for which we might have some new therapies uh, that will be further subdividing even that category into potential treatment uh, groups. So, this is uh, just a fascinating development and evolution uh, in endometrial cancer, and we're so excited to, uh, to, uh, to have this in front of us. So in Chapter 2, we'll be defining MSI high and DMMR endometrial cancer and considering the principles of testing. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We were just discussing the significance of endometrial subtype when it comes to prognosis and therapy selection in poly and MSI uh, phenotypes. Dr. Wachnan, how do we define microsatellite instability high or MSIH and deficient mismatch repair or DMMR in mitral cancer? Thank you, Rob, for this important question. I think this is a concept that we should clarify. Firstly, we need to know what are microsatellites. Let me explain in a brief manner. Microsatellites are repetitive DNA sequences that are distributed along the genome. And these DNA sequences are particularly sensitive to DNA mismatch report errors, which can occur during DNA replication. Secondly, the point is what is mismatch repair? Mismatch repair is a mechanism used to restore DNA integrity after the occurrence of mismatch errors, including single base mismatches or short insertion and deletion. So this pathway counts on four genes that play a critical role, namely MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. Then how can we define MSI? MSI is a condition of genetic hypermutability resulting from defective DNA mismatch repair. So what is a DMMR tumor? A DMMR tumor is a tumor with a defective mismatch repair pathway. It's a tumor that accumulates thousands of mutations, particularly clustered in microsatellites, and consisting in repeat length alteration resulting in MSI. In conclusion, MSI is a market of DMMR. So the presence of MSI represents phenotypic evidence that mismatch repair pathway is not functioning normally. Hopefully it's clear enough for you. Otherwise I can repeat in another way. Oh my gosh, that was so wonderful. I thought it was done very, very well. Congratulations on such a clear explanation. I think it's important to review that topic because what I'm going to ask Dr. Campos to do is to tell us how we find these patients uh, or these tumors that have this mismatch. So we want to know how do we test for microsatellite instability, higher MSHI, MSIH, and mismatch repair or DMMR in mitral cancer. 
It's a very important question. And there are multiple ways that one can test, but if one, you know, most institutions will test for immunohistochemistry using a panel of stains for the DNR MMR proteins. You know, they're gonna look at MLH1, they're gonna look at MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. So most institutions do ISC testing. There's, you can also look for microsatellite instability by doing PCR. And of course you can do next generation sequence, but most pathologists will favor the IHC. There's a high concordance between IHC and PCR testing. Thank you, Dr. Campos. Um, you know, as we see that these are so important to understand, and we'll we'll get into that into the emerging evidence of how we how we uh, take advantage of this uh, abnormality in these tumors when we find them. Um, we have this opportunity to uh, start to put this into our normal algorithm for how we evaluate endometrioid, particularly endometrioid endometrial cancer so that we can now define a new algorithm that will take advantage of that for, for treatment. So, so this will be, I think, really um, an important aspect of foundation to talk about where endometrial cancer treatment is going in the future. So thank you both. In chapter three, we'll be discussing how to apply current and emerging evidence to the treatment selection for endometrial cancer. So stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Rob Coleman, and here with me today are Drs. Campos and Wachman. We're discussing the role of immunotherapy in microsatellite instability high or mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer. Welcome back. We've been discussing MSI high and DMMR endometrial cancer, and now we're shifting gears to focus on guidelines and emerging treatments. So first, Dr. Campos, can you break down what the current NCCN guidelines are to advise for the treatment of endometrial cancer? So the current guidelines are for treating endometrial cancer are divided into uh, systemic therapies or biomarker-driven systemic chemotherapies. And in this particular section of the NCCN guidelines, you know, recurrent or metastatic disease, you know, we list the chemotherapies that are appropriate, such as carboplatinum and paclitaxel. But in that particular cohort, we also talk about the biomarker-driven therapies, and that includes pembrolizumab based on the Keynote 158 study, pembrolizumab and linbatinum based on the Keynote 146 study and the Keynote 775 study. We list dosterlamab based on the Garnet data for a deficiency in MMR. And there are some additional options there, such as nivalumab and evalumab, that were smaller studies looking at both of those compounds independently in uterine cancer and showed a modest activity. So the guidelines are really formulated to systemic therapies and also biomarker-driven systemic therapies if appropriate. Thank you. Um, Dr. Walkman, what are the recent data telling us about immunotherapy treatment for endometrial cancer? Oh, thank you, Rob, because, you know, I mean, the data that we have with IO in endometrial cancer are really, really exciting. This year in ESMO and ASCO, we have presented the latest data with IO in endometrial cancer, either as monotherapy, namely pembrolizumab from Keynote 158 and dostarlimab from the Garnet trial, and the combination of pembrolizumab plus lembatinib from the MK775 trial. I will start in a very short manner to summarize the latest data from the Keynote 158. As you know, in ESMO this year, Dr. O'Malley has presented the data with a median follow-up around 
54 votes, and with 94 patients treated. All these patients were a DMMR endometrial cancer patient who have progressed at least after one prior line of therapy. And what we have learned is that pembrolizumab at monotherapy provide with a 50% 5-0 overall response rate with 15 complete responses and 32 partial response. And interestingly, the duration of response is quite long. When we look at the percentage of patients who were still a response and three and four years, it was 66%. And moreover, when we look at overall survival at three or four years, it was 59%. It means amazing result for our patient with endometrial cancer. Looking at the Garnet trial that, as you know, is a phase 1B2 with different cohorts, but I will be focused on the cohort A1. It means those patients with DMMR tumor. This year in ASCO, we presented the data for 143 patients treated with dostarlimab and with a median follow-up of 26.6 months. What have we learned? We have learned that dostarlimab produced 45.5% overall response rate. I mean, 23 complete responses and 42 partial response. As very, very amazing, the duration of response. We can say that the median duration of response has not yet been reached. And in addition, really in a different way, 83% of the patients who have response were still in response after a medium follow-up of 24 months. It means a very good response rate and durable responses, providing a great benefit for our patients. But these two trials are mainly focused on DMMR patients. What about PMMR? and all camera. I mean, this population has been very nicely addressed by the MK775, as you well know, published this year by Dr. Marker and all in the New England Journal of Medicine, providing a benefit in terms of PFS and overall survival in favor of the Pembrolemba for those patients who wear PMMR and all camera. Although in the US, the combination is only approved for those patients whose tumor wear PMMR. This year in ESMO, Dr. Marker presented the final overall survival with a longer follow-up of 16 months. In this final overall survival, the data were confirmed. The combination of Pembrolembo was superior in terms of overall survival than the standard chemotherapy, namely doxorubicin or wikiplakitaxel, in the PMMR population and the all-camer population. And in addition, we saw this benefit in overall survival despite some patients were close to pembrolizumab lembatinib in the chemotherapy arm. Interestingly, I mean, just a kind of summary, the median overall survival was 12 months in the population treated with chemotherapy compared to almost 19 months in those patients treated with pembrolizumab and lembatinib. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, incredible uh, progress being made uh, with this uh... Uh, with this line, this type of therapy, as you mentioned, we have these two immune checkpoint inhibitors that have demonstrated their single agent activity in patients that are annotated by this um, this uh, deficient MMR uh, status or the MSI high status. 
Uh, and that's been very exciting for us because it was allowed us to continue the development of immune checkpoint inhibitors in this disease. And you shared with us some very important data with respect to Keynote 775, which is bringing the combination of levatinib and pembrolizumab in patients in an intent to treat population, demonstrating its activity even in patients that have a proficient MMR status or a non-MSI high status. Uh, this has been incredibly important because this therapy now has uh, demonstrated its efficacy and allowed us to actually even challenge some of our in more uh, uh, current standards of care, such as chemotherapy. And so, as you know, in LEAP001, we are looking at this combination with and pembrolizumab against chemo, combination chemotherapy. Uh, so we hope that we'll ultimately supplant chemotherapy in this potential patient cohort. But what's even more exciting is that we have the opportunity to move this type of therapy into annotated populations in combination with chemotherapy as a, um, a combination with maintenance, and also even to address a patient population that's considered high intermediate risk. So our hope is that this type of therapy will affect lasting changes in the tumor microenvironment so that patients may actually be cured at a higher rate uh, than we've seen in our traditional uh, therapies in the past. So we're very, very excited about that. And I think so as we look at what we've learned today in this session, we have some very active therapies that appear to be aligned with a predictive biomarker. And so this, I think, will be very important as we continue the clinical development of these agents in this disease. So thank you. In chapter four, we'll be discussing regional challenges based on testing. So stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, now that we have uh, been discussing the guidelines and the emerging uh, treatments for individual cancer, let's move on to some regional challenges. Dr. Rockman, what are some of the regional challenges that you see with ex access to uh, testing and treatment? Uh, thank you, Rob. Um, I would like to say that, you know, we don't have any issue regarding testing because, I mean, you know, in, in, in our region, in our country, I mean, in Spain, we use immunohistochemistry as a surrogate to TCGA to identify those patients who are either DMMR, PMMR, P53 normal. I don't think testing is a barrier. However, the access to immunotherapy is still a barrier because although EMA has already approved the combination of Pembrolembo for our patients with endometrial cancer who have progress after platinum therapy, this therapy is not yet available in our site. We can only access these drugs through the compassionate use. And you know, all these paperwork sometimes precludes physicians from treating patients with very effective regimen. However, for those patients who have EMMR, we have access to pembrolizumab and dostalima. But let me tell you something. For me, one of the main barriers is that some medical oncologists or gynecologists who are only treated patients with gyne, they are not used to working with immunotherapy. They are a little bit concerned about the side effect from this therapy. And this is a clear barrier. So I think we should increase the knowledge about how to manage this side effect in order to make physicians feel more comfortable with this therapy. Because I don't think we should miss any patient who may benefit from IO just because the doctors are not used 
working with this kind of drugs. So testing is not a barrier. Regulatory issue is a transient barrier because I hope that at the end of the year, hopefully as late as early next year, we will have our the drug sorry, in our pharmacy. But sir, I mean, the knowledge of management of side effect is still a barrier. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that the, uh, you know, what we've tried to do in, in many places with the availability of these agents is, to, is that the have a discussion with the pathologist so that these, um, a series of biomarkers can actually be addressed on the initial diagnosis so that you get a more comprehensive uh, view of what's going on in the tumor. And particularly with MSI testing, obviously this has an impact um, also for those, uh, you know, relatively rare patients that actually have Lynch syndrome. So carry a germline mutation in one of the mismatch repair uh, genes. Uh, and those would, those patients would require some additional counseling. So um, we um, have now built this into our kind of routine um, reflex testing for endometrioid and carcinoma. But I think as the space develops, you know, we'll be getting additional information such as HER2, um, you know, the comprehensive AR uh, endocrine uh, markers themselves. Um, and so there's a real opportunity to continue to expand the information that we can get right at the beginning. Well, this has been, um, you know, fascinating conversation. I'm so excited to have these two experts to join uh, me and join us today. Uh, I think the kind of the take-home messages that we've heard today, one is that endometrial cancer is becoming much more complicated than just a kind of type one, type two category that we used to use in the past. Uh, we've now uh, been able to uh, segregate this into different molecular subcategories. And while those have some biological significance and potentially some prognostic significance, importantly, some of them also have predictive significance because we now have agents that we can align with that. And we've seen through this discussion of efficacy that these immune checkpoint inhibitors have really uh, changed the landscape for this disease. And we're so excited for the future because we continue, to, we expect to see this uh, migration of therapy uh, to continue into earlier and earlier lines of therapy, hopefully providing even more benefit to our patients um, in the future. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening and for uh, both Dr. Campos and Dr. Wachman for joining me and sharing all of their valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash innovations in oncology. Thank you for listening.